This Week at Hope Point. Faith is your weapon against fear. Fight your fear of the unknown and your fear of the loss with faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith that all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Faith that God is good all the time, even in suffering. Faith that one day all will be made right and suffering will end. Faith that your suffering is producing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Faith that your suffering is producing faith in others. Faith is the only fitting response to helplessness. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Dan speaks to us from God's Holy Word. So my text this morning is uh, Mark 5, if you have your Bibles or your phones, if you could get there this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 42. In this text, we see um, a couple of miracles. In fact, the way the narrative goes, it's a miracle sort of nested inside of another miracle. Uh, this is the story of Jairus's daughter uh, being raised from the dead. And in the middle of that event, there's an interruption. And Jesus heals a woman who had suffered from a, a bleeding issue for 12 years. So I've titled my sermon, Two Daughters, because Jesus heals two daughters in this narrative, in this story. It's obvious that the one daughter is Jairus' daughter, but maybe less obvious is this woman because Jesus refers to her after he heals her as daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And so we have the healing of two daughters this morning. I like to give my sermons a subtitle to sort of give you a, a clue into the direction that we're going. And the subtitle I chose for this sermon is Desperation, Faith, and Miracles. Beyond the fact that Jesus is dealing with these two daughters, the progression that we see is desperation leads to faith, and faith leads to a miracle, and it's common in both encounters. This is the same progression that we must go through for the miracle of rebirth, the miracle of being allowed back in the presence of God, the miracle of being rescued from spiritual death. We need to come to a desperation that will lead to faith, that will lead to new birth, the miracle. So by way of introduction this morning, I wanna set the scene and the context of these miracles. I think this will give us some momentum going in to what's happening here uh, this morning. So the setting of this story is the northwestern seashore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been preaching on this same seashore the, the previous day from a boat. You see, the, the crowds have gotten so big because of his, his miracles and his claims and his preaching that he, he told the disciples, guys, you got to get me on a boat, push me offshore so I can preach from this boat to this crowd. And so he's preaching all day in, in parables to this crowd. And in the evening, he asked his disciples to take him across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And you, sort of, you know what happens if you know this story. A great storm arises. Jesus is asleep in the boat. The disciples get scared, they get afraid, and they wake Jesus up. And with three words, he says, peace be still, and the storm is calmed. On the other side of the sea was the country of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus steps off of the boat, he's met by a demon-possessed man whose name is Legion because of the thousands of demons that possess him. Jesus sent the demons out of this man into a group of pigs who ran off the cliff and drowned in the sea. And the people of that town 
heard about this. They heard that Jesus freed this, this possessed man of all of these demons. And what was their response? They were afraid. And they told him to get out of here. Like, go back to where you came from. And so got back in the boat and headed back to the other side of the sea where he was preaching the night before, where all the crowds were eager to hear him preach again, where he would soon encounter Jairus and this woman. So before we jump into the sermon, I don't want you to miss the point here that there, some, there was people on one side of the sea that rejected Christ for his miracles, and then on the other side of the sea, there were people that loved him for his miracles. The beautiful work of Christ can have opposite effects on people. Some will, by faith, want to see the same work done on them, and others in fear and rebellion will want to say, hey, I don't want anything to do with that crazy man. So as you sit here this morning, I, want, I wonder what side of the sea that you're on. Do you hear of Christ's miracle works and say with the garrisons, leave? I don't want anything to do with you. Or do you hear of his work and you want to run to him for healing like Jairus and this woman that we're about to meet? I pray that the tender power of our compassionate Savior will make you want to run to him this morning to heal your soul. So this is the setting Jesus just returning from the eastern seashore of Galilee back to where he was preaching the day before. And he, of course, is met with a large crowd. And let's, let's dive into the text. These are long sections of text. This is not like preaching of a, a letter that Paul writes or a Peter that Paul writes and we can, or a, a letter that Peter writes uh, where we can just handle phrase by phrase. We've got lots, lots of verses to go through to make one point. So bear with me. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. This is the scene that we're come upon where there's this great crowd that meets Jesus when he arrives. And there's this one man, however, whose needs and curiosity rises above the rest of the crowd. His name is Jairus. And the text tells us that he was a ruler of the synagogue. So this would have been a very important man in his community. He would have been like the el one of the elders of the Jewish church. Even some think that he would have been known as like this chairman of the elders. In a society driven by religion, he would have been a very honored man, a high-class man. So it's pretty amazing that he would fall at somebody's feet and implore him. This was a desperate man. He was pleading Jesus, heal my little girl. He was ready to risk public ridicule. This displayed great humility on his part. It showed his great desperation. It demonstrated his fervency. It was a recognition of Jesus' superiority. Nothing else works. I want to get to Jesus. It said Jesus was his only hope. So a sick child led to desperation, and desperation led to faith in Christ. This God-man can heal my little girl. I need to get to him. And what's Jesus' immediate reaction? Not just words, he went. Jesus moves towards desperation. 
Despite the growing number of people, Jesus enters into this man's desperation. The text says he he went with him. Despite the crowds, Jesus recognizes desperation and he walks towards it. Furthermore, the text says that there's this crowd that sort of thronged around him. Lots of people pressing up against Jesus as he's trying to get to this little girl. And imagine the father like, people, get out of the way. He needs to heal my daughter. And there's this throng of people around Christ. And I think, I think Mark is trying to, to paint a picture in our minds here. And the picture I get is, is being on a New York City subway. Years ago, I had a business trip to New York City, finished, finishing up the day, getting on the subway, probably bad choice. It's already pretty crowded, rush hour, heading back to my hotel. And I was, didn't, had no idea what was in store for at the next stop. But I would describe it as throngs of people getting on this subway car with me. And the doors are closing, and nobody wants to be left outside this subway car. And they just push, and people pushing people. And all of a sudden, there's people all up against me, side, back, front. And I'm just hand on my wallet, holding my computer. <laughs> and if, if you know me at all, I don't like people I know being in my personal space. <laughs> so this was like off the charts for me. All these strangers pressed up against me, and this was literally the longest three minutes of my life, getting to that next stop where people would get out. And I think this is what Mark wants us to sort of feel as he uses this strong language of, there's a lot of people pressing up against Christ here. And I think he does this to set, sort of set the scene in our minds for what's about to happen. Because there's another sufferer about to interrupt this scene. Another sufferer desperate for healing. And this sufferer's mind, this throng, would allow her to make a healing contact with Jesus and go unnoticed, so she thinks, right? Let's pick up the story with this woman. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all of that she had and was, better, was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, around you, and yet you say, who touched me? It's like New York City subway throng here, right? Everybody's touching you. And he looked around to see who who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You see, Mark paints a very descriptive picture of this woman and her desperation in these first two verses. It's so descriptive that we can't help but be drawn into this woman's suffering. Despite this unappealing description of her, we have sympathy for her. Not only has her suffering caused this bleeding issue for 12 years, but when she went to the doctors, the doctors even made it worse. And not only that, not only did the doctors make it worse, but she spent all, of, all that she had to even make it worse. You see, in the Old Testament, Jewish law said that her condition made her ceremonially unclean. The law said that she was to be cast out from the camp. 
So on top of her suffering, there was this weight of the shame that she didn't belong anymore, that she was not welcome in her community anymore. This was why she was being so discreet in her attempt to be healed. She wasn't supposed to be there. Her social status was in marked contrast to that of Jairus's status, the leader of the synagogue. But despite their differences in social status, their desperation was the same. Desperation does not discriminate. We all face desperation that can drive us to our knees. Maybe you're there today. It doesn't matter what your religion is. Doesn't matter your race, your social status. Desperation is desperation and it hurts. It drives some of us to faith in Jesus and it drives others to fear. Over 12 years, this woman went to great lengths to free herself from her disease and the shame that it brought with it. All the physicians and all of her money could not do what Jesus was about to do, what she knew Jesus could do. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you say, I can't really connect to that story. Maybe you you haven't suffered physically for 12 years like this woman. Most likely your body isn't bleeding for 12 years like this woman. Maybe not. But let me tell you, if you've never met Christ in your desperation, then your soul is hemorrhaging. When it comes to remedies for our physical ailments like this woman, we'll spare no expense. We'll spend all that we have, like this woman, to fix our broken bodies. Yet when it comes to our souls, the smallest of labor is too much. The almighty physician can be secured without cost, yet he is traded for remedies that prove to make our condition worse. The cure for emptiness, fear, and confusion is not found in a spouse. It's not found in having children. It's not found in a better or new job. It's not found in the party scene. It's not found in a new vocation. It's not found in some new college degree. Without Jesus, these things only will leave you worse off because you'll get the false sense of happiness while your soul is hemorrhaging on its way to hell. Like this woman, before meeting Christ, we all have a blood issue. Our blood issue is that we need somebody else's blood. Our blood issue is that we need Jesus' blood. It is his blood that will heal our bleeding souls. That's what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Our sin has brought on the curse of death. Yes, physical death, but ultimately spiritual death, where we'll be separated from Christ and God for all eternity in hell. But Jesus' blood has secured this eternal redemption and eternal healing. In both our miracle, the miracle of rebirth, and this woman's miracle, there's a common desperation for healing and a common faith in Jesus. We need the same desperation over our sin and the same faith in a healing Jesus. This woman is no different than us. Faith is the vehicle to the miracle. And the same is true for our bleeding souls. Putting your faith in the work of Christ on the cross is the vehicle to new life, is the vehicle to dry up our soul bleeding. We all have a blood issue. 
Furthermore, we must understand how remarkable this encounter is, right? It's remarkable not only because of the two miracles, but also because in this encounter, it should have never happened, right? Old Testament law said she couldn't be there. Numbers chapter 5 tells us that. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. This is God talking. Anyone with a discharge, male or female, must be put outside the camp. This was harsh, but was necessary. Number one, it kept the camp free of disease. But number two, and most importantly, God dwelt there. It allowed the presence of God to remain in the camp. God cannot be in the presence of uncleanness. If God was to stay in the camp, his people had to be clean. And so they had to cast out any kind of uncleanness. He could not be among defiled people because he's a holy and clean God. That's good for the people inside the camp, right? But to be outside the camp was to be outside of a relationship with God. This was a huge problem for people that were unclean, cut off from God, cut off from the rest of society, cut off from their family, cut off from community. And that's what this woman was experiencing. This was the source of her shame. Therefore, she waited for the throngs of people to hide herself while she tried to steal a healing from God, a healing from Jesus. This is why she trembled in fear when when Jesus called her out. Who touched my garment? Even, Even more, the remarkable thing about this healing is that Jesus did what the ceremonial law could not do, right? The ceremonial law said not only that she needs to be expelled, but the ceremonial law said that anything that a defiled person touches also becomes defiled. Anything an unclean person touches also becomes unclean. Let's, let's, just, let's just read Leviticus 5, where these clean laws come from. We'll go through them quick. Leviticus 15, 4 through 12. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies is unclean. Anyone who touches the bed is unclean. Whoever sits on anything the person with the discharge has sat is unclean. Whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge is unclean. If the one with the discharge spits on anyone, that person is unclean. The saddle on which the person sat with the discharge, also unclean. Whoever touches anything under him shall be unclean. Anyone to whom, anyone whom the one with the discharge touches is unclean. Any earthen vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken. Are you tracking with this? Whatever the unclean person touched, that uncleanness would transfer to that thing or that person, even if it's incidental. The bed, the chair, the clothes, the saddle, the jar, the person, all by contact with uncleanness, then becomes unclean itself. This uncleanness is highly contagious. And this woman touches Jesus. Fast forward to the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. A great Hebrew crowd is gathered and includes a ruler of the synagogue, 
a defiled woman and the holy son of God. If only this crowd knew what was about to happen, they would have not let her come this close to Jesus, let alone touch his garment. If they knew that, they would probably try to keep her away. She's unclean. Don't let her defile the son of God. Don't let her defile this miracle worker. No, she touched him. She touched his garment. This uncleanness is not going to transfer to him. We're going to have to kick him out of the camp. He cannot be around Israel. But wait a minute. Her uncleanness didn't transfer to Christ. Jesus is not defiled. In fact, his cleanness transferred to her. This has never been seen before. Unclean always corrupts clean. So what is this? With Jesus, clean purifies unclean. With Jesus, now clean becomes contagious. Her flow of blood dried up by the touch of the hem of his garment. Jesus did what the ceremonial law could not do and could not offer us. Jesus was the solution to our shame. Jesus was the solution to her uncleanness. Jesus was the solution to her exclusion from community. Jesus is the solution for bringing sinners back into a relationship with God, not by allowing uncleanness in the presence of God, but by healing us of our uncleanness. This is the good news. This is the miracle. We cannot have a relationship with God in our sinful condition. Like this woman, we must be excluded from the presence of God. Like this woman, we have been defiled by sin. This is the condition that we've all been born into that no doctor can fix, no amount of money can solve. But you know what? Jesus Christ has arrived on the shore of Galilee. The almighty physician has come, and he's here this morning, ready to meet you in all of your desperation, ready to meet you in all of your dirtiness, ready to meet you in all of your sin and brokenness. Reach out to him in faith, and he will heal your bleeding soul. Reach out to him, and he'll say what he said to this woman, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That can happen this morning. Speaking of daughters, we're not going to forget about Jairus' daughter. Let's check in on him, see what was happening with Jairus' daughter. Verse 35 to 42. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The, children is, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside, all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years old, 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. I really just want to draw two final points out here from this, the rest of this story. The first is related to fear, 
right? The, 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 the messenger came, and what's, what's, what's his response? Fear. What's Jairus' response? Fear. Notice how the situation with his daughter got worse. Right while he was speaking healing words to this woman, Jairus' messengers come up to him, and Jairus learns that his little daughter didn't make it. The text says that while Jesus was still speaking, he overheard this. Imagine the disappointment. Literally, while Jesus was telling this woman that her faith led to a miracle of healing, Jairus is hearing that his daughter, formerly sick daughter, is now dead. So what's, what's Jesus' response? Do not fear, only believe. It's believe again, right? He just got done telling this woman that her faith made her well. And then when fear wells up inside of Jairus, what does Jesus say? Believe. The same faith that heals is the same faith that extinguishes fear. To Jesus, courage is not the opposite of fear. He didn't say, Jairus, do not fear, only have courage. He didn't say, man up or suck it up. No, he said, do not fear, only believe. Faith is the opposite of fear. Jesus' antidote to fear is faith. Have you ever been in a situation like Jairus, where your faith was big enough to handle your current suffering, but then your suffering went to a level for which your faith was not prepared? This is what happened to Jairus. His faith was not prepared to handle this level of suffering, and maybe neither is yours. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're at this level of suffering. Jesus immediately preaches the gospel to Jairus, and Jesus is preaching the gospel to you this morning, sufferer. Jesus says to you, do not fear, only believe. Faith is your weapon against fear. Fight your fear of the unknown and your fear of the loss with faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Faith that God is good all the time, even in suffering. Faith that one day all will be made right and suffering will end. Faith that your suffering is producing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Faith that your suffering is producing faith in others. Faith that your suffering is causing others to give glory to God. Faith that your suffering is producing humility in you, the crown jewel of the Christian life. Faith is the only fitting response to helplessness. So Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. If you take that point a little further, logically, then unbelief is the cause of fear. I took the staff through a book by John Flavel called Fear, just, a, just like a whole essay on fear. And one of my favorite quotes in there was this, unbelief persuades people that their lives and all that is dear to them are in their enemy's hands. Faith, on the other hand, tells us that we and all that is ours is in God's hands. No enemy can touch us unless he gives permission. Therefore, our duty is to please him and commit everything to him. We are persuaded many times by our carnal reasoning that God has abandoned us. Christian, take hold of your thoughts. Subdue your carnal mind and subject your reasoning to faith. We are prone to measure things by what we see, by what we feel, by what we hear, by what we experience. This may work in minor suffering, 
but will fail you when suffering gets to that unexplainable level. Our reasoning limits God's power, causes us to draw desperate conclusions, and sets us on a sinful course to save ourselves. Friends, there are things that are outside the reach of our reason. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Do not fear, only believe. The second and last thing I want to draw out from this story, from the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, is this just beautiful, tender power with which Christ handles the enemy of death. Jesus is so tender with desperate people who need him, yet so powerful against the death that holds them. Let me read again from the narrative when Jesus snatches this little girl from the jaws of death. It says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. So here's Jesus standing over this little girl who has fallen into the abyss of death. He's not panicked. He's not shaken. He's not scared. He doesn't fear this. He stands before what the Bible calls our last enemy, which is death. We have no control over when it comes. Death tells us that we are not God. And for many of us, it's the thing we fear the most. And maybe Peter, James, and John are standing there thinking, man, we're about to see it go down. We're about to see Jesus go head to head with death. There's going to be shouting. There's going to be screaming. There's going to be wrestling. There's going to be some kind of commotion. Imagine their surprise and their amazement when Jesus simply kneels, takes this little girl by the hand, looks into the face of death and says, little girl, get up. What? No magic words, no, no potion, no formula, no screaming, no shouting. Do you see the tender power of Jesus in this scene? Jesus reaches down into the pit of death and with the same words I would use to wake my little girl up, baby, it's, it's time to get up. Baby, it's time to get up. He brings this girl back from death. The same savior who tames wild storms and casts out angry demons becomes a tender shepherd for broken and desperate people. Death is no match for him. Defilement doesn't scare him. He sees your desperation and enters into it. He's got you by the hand this morning. And he's saying to you, get up. Get up, I'm here to heal you. He's got you by the hand, looking into your deepest sufferings and your biggest fears, and he's saying, little girl, it's time to get up. Men, he hears your fears. Even if you're too strong to voice them. And he's saying to you, son, do not fear, only believe. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.